tuned to Morgoni Island on WFMU. I'm your host, Evan Levins, here every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits. This week is no exception. We have guests joining us, Hashim Kataro Barucha, a L.A.-based DJ and journalist who uh, created the liner notes for We Want Sound's latest release. It's for the Japanese actress and singer Meiko Kaji, and it's the reissue in partnership with Techiku Records, uh, her debut album from 1972. This is the second We Want Sounds release for Meiko Kaji albums, but uh, this is her debut coming out at the end of the month here in February. It's the first time the album's been reissued since its original release back then. It comes with the original Japanese artwork and newly remastered audio. Uh, famous as an actress for her 70s exploitation films, most notably... Lady Snowblood and the Female Prisoner Scorpion and Stray Cat Rock series, initially for uh, Nikatsu Studios, and then uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion. She made her move over to Toei. Of course, all these films revered and heralded by Quentin Tarantino. Lady Snowblood, notably um, a huge influence of Kill Bill. Meiko Kaji also released a string of great albums on Techiko Records. The Japanese actress Maiko Kaji, born in Tokyo, became a worldwide cult icon thanks to Quentin Tarantino when uh, the 1973 revenge genre film Lady Snowblood was used as a huge influence in some of the music in his films. Ginsho Wataradori was the first album released by Maiko Kaji in 72. The album features the main theme, Ginsho Wataradori, for the gangster film for Toei Films that she sings. And no one outside is Japan is Wandering Ginza Butterfly. On the cover, Meiko wears the kimono she wears in the film. Recorded straight after the shooting of the film, and Keiji recalls the recording process. After two weeks of filming, mentally I'm still in my character, so I would go to the studio to record the song. In that mindset, so I'm recording my vocals, I'm still acting. It's produced by seasoned Teichiku producers Yorifumi Ito and Kenji Nakajima. Joining us, Hashim Kotoro Barucha, LA-based now, DJ, journalist. But welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so why don't we just start from the beginning, and you can probably describe to the, the listeners who is Meiko Kaji. She's still alive right and with us so meiko kaji is an actress and singer from japan she's uh i think 76 years old now so she got her start in the industry as a teenager as an actress and then in japan back in the day uh, when you became an actress you also had to sing like a song when you promoted your films the film studio would have her get up on stage for the film premieres and she would sing like a cover and then that led her into singing the theme songs for a lot of the, her films. She first started out like you know as a regular teenage actress, but then after that, um, she got roles more in like the yakuza world, um, you know, the mafia type, mafioso type films, playing really badass, kind of tough women. A lot of revenge 
type films. Um, so she was very well known for the Stray Cat Rock um, series of films in the 70s. It was from the Nikatsu studio. And then she was also in the Female Prisoner Scorpion series. And so this genre of film, it's called Pinku Ega or Pinky movies as they're, as they're known in the West. Um, a lot of, um, you know, mafia prisoner type references, a lot of drugs psychedelia happening so if you watch the movies now like like a lot of that kind of stuff you could probably, probably can do it do it now because it was so <clears throat> violent and bloody and the music was really incredible because they were mixing in the music from the west from the day like psychedelic rock funk and then and then that was mixed with like the um, traditional japanese music of the day which was called enka enka is like the country music of japan so you had these minor key very Japanese sounding melodies over like funky rhythms from the West. And then she was singing on top of that. She's not a trained singer, but what made her special was when I interviewed her, she always told me that she never thought of herself as a singer. So whenever she sang these theme songs, she would just be in her character from the film. So she would still be playing that tough chick who was on the motorbikes or the mafia lady. So she would be in the in the recording studio, still in that character and singing. And I think when you listen back to these records, that's what um, makes them so special. Like you look on the cover of Kincha Watari Dori, you know, she's still wearing that, the mafia kimono, she has that look. And then when you listen to the music, it totally matches that vibe. So um, I think that's what really makes her special. And obviously what made her really well known is because her film Lady Snowblood became the uh, big inspiration for Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. That's a little brief synopsis. Yeah, and so and then and a lot of her music's were you purposed for the Quentin Tarantino movies, right? Her famous Oren Ishii fight scene with uh, Yuma Thurman. When that plays, it's playing um, her song, her famous um, Meiko Kaji's famous song, "The Flower of Carnage." So. If any, if you got, if you guys get a chance, they haven't watched that scene. You should definitely check it out. And, and so, Ginto Watari, that's basically wandering Ginta butterfly, right? That's the main theme, um, which came out before Lady Snowblood, like her most famous film potentially, um, but after Stray Cat Rock, right? She made a move to yes, wandering Ginta butterfly or Ginto Watari Dori was from 1972, um, so that was also a film all about revenge. You know, she was in prison for something. She got out and then she gets, she doesn't, she can't get a job. So she's, she becomes a hostess at a, a bar in Ginza. And then she gets involved with the, the mafia again. So she has a fight there. So it's a lot of the same themes, but um, yeah, the music is very, uh, very amazing, really funky, groovy stuff. Yeah, you should definitely check that film out if you get a chance. A lot of great fight scenes, a lot of blood and gore. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So that's her debut album, right, that, that came out. So, and, and I guess We Want Sounds is working closely with the original Japanese record label, which I guess is still around, Taichiku Records? She's been with Taichiku from the start. So she's been with them for almost 60 years. She's released, I think, all of her music through that label. Yeah, so she's had a very long career with them. So yeah, I, I helped reach out to the label. I first interviewed her a couple of years ago for several articles and the liner notes that I wrote, and she was very lovely. Um, she's 76, but she's still super active. There was a recent uh, TV drama in Japan called Kino Nani Tabeta, or it's called What Did You Eat Yesterday? It's about a gay couple, and she's playing the mom of one of the gay men in the show, and it's, it's a really lovely show. But yeah, so she's super active. She still sings and acts. Sounds like at one point in her 30s, she made a conscious effort to get away from some of these typical films that she was being uh, hired for, yes. you know, in the exploitation world or these revenge flicks and whatnot, and 
she actually came to America, right, and studied acting for a little bit. She told me when I interviewed her that she kind of got tired of the same type of roles that she was playing. It was always, you know, uh, somebody from the underworld. And she made a conscious effort to move away from that. And she she came to New York. She stayed in the U.S. for a couple months. And I don't think she actually went to a f acting school or anything, but she just... Um, I, th I think she did some um, award shows and stuff. She she made her presence there. And then just seeing actors here and how tough they were, like people, she was telling me like experience of seeing uh, Broadway actors in New York, you know, having part-time jobs, but then also acting. It made her realize, you know, how lucky she was to be able to just do acting only. So when she got back to Japan, um, she said, you know, she went out of her way to do, you know, more regular roles, you know, playing like a, a mom or something. And that was a totally different image that, that she already had because she was telling me like back in the day when she started and she was playing these playing these roles in these exploitation films, the, the media, when they would come to interview her and she would smile for the photos, they would say, please don't smile. And the film company would also be like, you know, don't smile. You should always be in that character. So I think she felt very pigeonholed by that. And she kind of wanted to move away. She said it was very difficult at first to play these different types of roles. But, you know, that really opened her up to more work. So, yeah, you look at IMDb or wherever, she has over 120 credits, you know, and I know that some of those early films, at least, um, I mean, she must have been knocking a ton of them out because... Like I had read that Stray Cat Rock, that whole series, it was filmed in a couple weeks. Is that true? Yeah. Like they just bang those all out. She was telling me from uh, start to finish, from developing to, and she said she said she did all of her makeup and costumes too back in those 70s films. So she said they would knock out films in like two weeks and, you know, they would get no sleep, you know. They didn't have any kind of unions or anything like that in Japan. So, like, it didn't really matter. Like, they, they were just knocking out films. And she she was telling me when she had her first encounter with Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino went to Japan to uh, promote Kill Bill. And one of his stipulations in his contract was that he absolutely had to meet uh, Meiko Kaji while he, was in, while he was in Japan. They had an interview together, and she told him, how long did it take you to make Killbone? They were saying like, you know, several years. And then when she said she was making things like Lady Snowblood and the Stray Cat Rock series in two weeks, he was like, just like flabbergasted. So oh, yeah. Right, right. So she got her start and she was just a teenager, right? Yes. And she started with uh, Nikatsu mm. studio at the time. And did she have any formal training in singing or anything like that? Or did they just throw her into the fire? She told me that she never had any uh, type of formal, you know, vocal training. It was more about, you know, as I was mentioning, when she would promote these films, they they told her she had to sing. So when she'd go to the film studio, she'd try to find sheet music for songs that she could sing that were in her range. So she was saying it was more about just doing it. And um, she said she was completely self-taught. I mean, does she know when taking a job that just very likely that she's going to have to sing? I, I assume when you go into acting in Japan in the late 60s, <laughs> every lead or, or semi-lead actor or actress has to do this? Yes. From what I know from back in the day in the 60s and 70s, most of the uh, main actors would sing the theme songs. Yeah, if, if you check out Gincho Watari Dori and the last scene, the, the fight scene where she's, uh, you know, getting revenge and killing her opponent, you know, you, you hear her song playing um, in a lot of the other films too, Straight Cat Rock and Female Prisoner Scorpion too, um, you will see her singing those those theme songs and she would often try to not sing the songs because she said she wasn't very comfortable but the filmmakers you know made her do that but you know 
I think we were lucky that she did sing those songs. Oh, yeah. Like back in Stray Cat Rock, she was, even though, like, I guess the first one, she wasn't considered the star, I guess. She was supporting, had a supporting role. And um, the other, I can't remember, Akiko Wada? Is that her yeah, name? Like, like she was the main the main star, at least billed that way, for the first in the series, and then quickly Miko became the, the star of the remaining four movies in the series. But she sang even back then. Like I know, t- twenty plus years ago, those those compilations, those amazing compilations, came out for the Streak Out Rock series. I recall she has a number of of uh, tracks that she sang, or she there's like a duet, as I recall too. I mean, she was. she's a very well-known singer still to this day. She's on TV a lot. I think shortly after doing those films, she went a more mainstream route, though she came from, you know, you know, humble background and stuff. I think Meiko Kaji kind of still kept on doing that image for a while. And as you mentioned, those reissues that came out, uh, like after the way I found out about Meiko Kaji was obviously through Kill Bill which was in 2003, but then shortly afterwards, and I come from like a hip hop DJ, you know, digging for records type of background. So when I was, you know, looking for records, I found that the Shura no Hana song or, and the Urami Bushi seven inch, um, those are the songs that were used in the Kill Bill film. So I was like, oh, wow, this is really dope. It, it sounds like it could be like a, a Wu-Tang track or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I got it into it that way. And then all those uh, reissues, started coming out from the Hot Wax um, series, like the Stray Cat Rock and Female Prisoner Scorpion tracks. And they had a lot of, you know, break beats on them, really funky tracks. There's even like a lot of stuff, even on this this initial release, that, I mean, I don't, and, and you can probably shed some light on this, but some of these these tracks on here, I don't know where they come from, but like, I know like towards Kokoro no Kori, like it has a very Bollywood sounding drum beat and, uh, very much reminds me of, I mean, just very cinematic in that sense, but the kind of thing that was very much being sampled 20 plus years ago in, in hip hop, like you said, Wu-Tang. And what are the other tracks? Like, I know the opening track is is noted to be the theme to uh, Wandering Guns of Butterfly, but so what does she fill out the rest of her album with? Um, I think these are all film-related songs. Uh, Jingi Komori Uta, I think, also comes from um, another film. So all these were pro- more or less created for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Th- they're not like some traditional folk song done in an upbeat way or anything like that. For yeah. The most part. Uh, Burus, I think, was also from the same film, the uh, Wandering Ginza Butterfly film, and it's also interesting because a lot of these, if you just listen to the titles, they're all very kind of morbid types of titles or related to the mafia or underworld. Ginjo Wataridori, obviously, you know, is a reference to. The Ginza butterfly is, you know, her being a, a hostess in Ginza. Jingi Komori Yuta, the second track. Jingi is like a term that they use in the Japanese mafia world to mean like honor or respect. So it's like a jing, like an honor or respect ballad. Komori Yuta means ballad. You know, Gincho Budusu, this is also a reference to, you know, her being um, in Ginza as a hostess and kind of like, like a bluesy song. So yeah, a lot of this stuff is very on the melancholic side. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, that a lot of this had to do with the songwriters would tell her in the studio, don't go against the image that we've already created for you. So she did have some reservations about that, but she said it kind of did help her career back then to have that, you know, image that people could, you know, relate to or understand easily. Do you know how long this tradition lasted in Japan to for like where the, 
the main actor or actresses would sing a title tune? I think it was mainly up to the 70s, probably. I think it's still con- continuing in the 80s a little bit. There's like films like where the drummer from YMO, Takash Sun, he, he played a role in a film where he pretty much made all the music. So that kind of stuff still trickled into the 80s, but it mainly happened more in the uh, 70s. But it did still continue in the 80s, though. Yeah, I guess you see that time here and there, I guess, in European 70s, I guess, 60s, 70s films in in U.S. too. But it wasn't like the standard, like if you get this acting role, you're going to have to figure out how to sing. But that's what's so cool about is like some of these people that aren't trained or, you know, they didn't grow up like, you know, aiming for Broadway or whatnot. So there's kind of warts and all in the vocals, like some of it can get a little pitchy or something, but it gets that's kind of what's cool about it. It makes it a little more raw and <laughs> dangerous and interesting and whatnot. So remember the second track from Ginchu Watari Dori, Jingi Komoriuta, which I just mentioned, is from a different film called um, Kaidan no Bidu or Blind Woman's Curse, which is a bloody movie. But um, yeah, that was that was also a um, theme song. A theme song, yeah. We're speaking with my guest, Hashim Katora Barucha, who wrote the liner notes for the upcoming We Want Sounds reissue, which is the debut album of actress and vocalist Meiko Kaji, who is part of, I guess, a five-part series that's, that will be coming out and has, the first release came out last year uh, on We Want Sounds, and that's in close relationship with uh, the record label Taichiku Records in Japan, which is still around, and working with uh, Meiko Kaji to this day. The first release that you wrote the liner notes for was a Right. And that has a lot of the music from Female Prisoner Scorpion, right? Right. Which is pretty pretty well known. What did do you know why the, the, the label decided to not release like I guess them chronologically in order? Um, I'm, I'm not sure what, why that happened. I think it's because the Hajiki Uta record had um, a lot of the songs that she's known for, like the track that was used for Kill Bill. Yeah. This one's interesting because when I interviewed Meiko Kaji, she told me that she always felt like an outsider. So the title of this record, the term Hajiki, it means kind of outsider. But then it's also another street term that can mean gun or pistol. It's like a term that was used back in the day by a lot of the mafia types. So it goes along with her image of, you know, being an outsider, but then also being this kind of badass chick who wielded guns in her films. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of where that title comes from. As I recall, the opening track is the first in the series of the Female Prisoner Scorpion film. First one, I think it's 701 or her prisoner number. (laughs) I mean, just that, like, it's a great, great track. Was that, that's one that uh, Quentin Tarantino Mm. reused? Yeah, he, he used it in the Kill Bill 2 film, I think. Part two. And she, and that's one where she intentionally, it's pretty bold of her. It kind of says a lot for, I guess, her confidence or whatever. Not only that she's willing to sing in all these films as an untrained singer and whatnot, but then, like, my understanding is that in Female Prisoner Scorpion, she kind of told the producers or director, I, I don't want to speak. <laughs> I don't want to speak in these films. I want to be the strong, silent type. She brought her own costuming, like, all of a sudden, she's dictating what's what's going on. So yeah, she she told me that um, she didn't want to have any lines. She just wanted to you know act using her expressions. And she also told an interesting story of how 
it was the director's um, first film. So he had a lot on the line too. Like if he messed up and didn't get good sales for that film, he would lose his job too. So he had the double task of creating a film with the main character that wouldn't say any lines. But um, it did work out for them. So I think uh, the song was written by um, Kohan Kawauchi and they wrote, you know, the song for her. So she came into the studio, you know, still in character and sung that song, Urami Bushi and the Shunya Ito. Yeah, so often the screenwriter or the director, they were becoming lyricists, basically, for these these tunes? Yes, that would happen a lot for these films, I guess, because, you know, they wanted the story to coincide with the theme song. Did uh, Do you know if Teichiku, they had sort of in-house, like, studio band, like, like the way the Wrecking Crew in the United States or the BBC people or Chinachita had people... Yeah, it was hard to find the credits for all of this, but I think they had, you know, the same musicians working on most of these songs. Any idea if, like, any of them became well-known in their own right or put out records eventually? I'm not sure, but I think a lot of the writers, uh, you know, they they went on to produce a lot of hits after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting, and, and who knows, you know, 10 years from now, some of this could surface in the same way. If, for sure. Like, these documentaries come out where the the forgotten band, you know, at Motown or the guys in the Wrecking Crew or whatever, like how they've just been on, I could imagine in Japan, just hundreds and or thousands of, of recordings and and you would never even know. What about the the producers that I guess were listed in the liner notes for the, the Gento re- release? In Japan, it's kind of interesting because um, in Japan, you have like the, the songwriter and then you have somebody called the arranger. And the ranger is the one who's actually coming up with the ideas of how, you know, the song should sound or like, you know, in the West, you'd call it a producer. So I, I can't I can't remember all the people that, that worked on this, but um, she was saying that a lot of these people were very in touch with, you know, music that was happening in the West. And that's why they brought in these elements of like psychedelic rock or funk and stuff like that. And we're mixing it in with, you know, the Japanese music of the day. Do you know when you spoke with her, do you have any idea of like this resurgence of her music and you know reuse I guess and repurposing by Quentin Tarantino and others I guess sampling and whatnot does she get any sort of royalty share from that any idea um, if it hits comes back to her in any way not re- really being the songwriter she didn't yeah she didn't write the song so maybe it comes back as um you know singing royalties but I'm not sure yeah um, I guess being she's still on the label, they must somehow, I can only assume she was blown away by the um, resurgence in her music and the reuse by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, she was very happy about it, obviously. And um, when uh, I think Tarantino reached out, the person who wrote like Shuranohana, who was uh, Hirao-san, um, I, they didn't really know about Tarantino, so they're like, we're we're getting these calls from ho- some some guy in Hollywood who wants to use your music, and she was kind of unsure about it at first. She wasn't sure if her music would, you know, because she sings only in Japanese, so she wasn't sure if her music could work in, uh, you know, in English, in Hollywood film. She said to the songwriter, "If you're okay with it, then I'm I'm okay with it." You know, so, several years later, she said she saw Kill Bill, and she was totally shocked because, you know, her music really worked in this Western film. So she was, she said it was a very nice surprise for her. Yeah, it's so prominent too, right? I mean, it's just the big scenes. And her character, I guess, is the Lucy Luke character is very much yeah. influenced and inspired by her character. Yeah. The <laughs> uh, white kimono that, um, you know, the Lucy Lou character, Orini, she's wearing is definitely inspired by the white kimono that Meiko Kaji is wearing in 
Lady Snowblood, just the fight scene in general with the snow, that definitely comes from Lady Snowblood also. So, yeah, you could, yeah, in that sense, you know, me being from, you know, hip hop digging kind of background and seeing how Tarantino was digging into that, into the films from the 70s from Japan, that I really resonated with that. And I think for a lot of people too, they found out about these um, 70s Japanese films through Tarantino. Have you actually, as a crate digger, have you found all or most of these records? Um, I can't say I found all of them, but um, I've tried to pick up what I could while I was living in Japan. That was a very interesting time for me because, you know, I was more into finding records from the West, from the U.S. or or Europe, and then, you know, through films like Kill Bill or just finding out about funky music from Japan, I was I started digging for a lot of. Japanese records back then from the late 70s and 80s and stuff. A lot of those records I bought and brought back, brought with me when I moved to LA and started DJing with them. And a lot of that stuff started kind of blowing up and becoming reissues, like that whole city pop movement that started happening on, you know, through YouTube and stuff. I, I bought a lot of those types of records. You know, we didn't call it city pop back then. But um, it kind of blew up this whole genre later on. So it's interesting how culture from Japan from the 70s and 80s is kind of getting a lot of attention in the West now. Well, you know, it's just an incredible cinema that's, you know, it's always come out of mm. Japan <laughs> from yeah, the 40s, 50s and beyond. But yeah, um, it, it all makes sense. And then, yeah, it's just really cool that there's, you know, a resurgence and there's reissues of, mm. of these records so people can get their hands on them. Definitely. Here in the United States and elsewhere. So, yeah, We Want Sounds are <laughs> doing God's work. I mean, they put out an incredible uh, amount of music yeah. in a short period of time, if you go to the website. Uh -huh. it, of course, also the namesake of the show, Morcone, they've done a number of releases. And um, Sarah's Gainsborough one's very memorable. And But there's just so much work that's going into this. And love, you can tell. I know that you, 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 your, fo your show focuses on film music. And in Japan, there was... It might be happening a little bit less now because people aren't buying as many records, but the whole um, music soundtrack reissue world was very big in Japan. There was a lot of Morricone reissues that only happened out there. Um, you'd find these, you know, my, you know, indie labels that would release these really um, obscure, you know, film soundtracks and stuff. So that was, so I, I tried to buy as much of that kind of stuff as, as I could also. Another thing I remember that Meiko Kaji told me was when she talked to Tarantino, he was telling her that they would play Lady Snowblood on the set every day while they're filming and all the staff had to see it. <laughs> so he really ingrained that whole aesthetic into um, his team. Apparently she was very, he was making all this, all the crew and uh, act yeah. actors yeah. Watch, watch it over and over to get the vibe. Yeah. It's like the uh, Sergio Leone type, <laughs> like with the Morricone music, just like making uh -huh. them listen to it over and over to create the vibe of it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Are, are there other are there others in your mind unknown or undiscovered at least by the West like these types of actor actress singers that one day could be rediscovered or or sort of have not been overlooked that make I guess an analogous type person. You mentioned Akiko Wada. She's very she's still very big on TV and stuff. But like you know, if you look at her films like these kind of uh, these pinky films from back in the day, they're really tough and. Her music, she comes from uh, like uh, her background, like she's really influenced by R&B and stuff. So if you listen to her old music, it's very funky and yeah, it's, it's very informed by the West um, music from the 70s and stuff, but it has a Japanese touch to it. So I think Akiko Wada's music, you know, it's kind of overlooked because she's so pop now, but I think her music from the 70s is really dope. 
They're putting out records for her back then, too. Um, I'm sure she has some reissues, but I'm not sure if it's getting the kind of attention maybe that Miko Kaji is getting. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I'd have to look through my whole record collection. But mm. yeah, there's a lot of records that have just gone unnoticed from the 70s and 60s and stuff. Was there any, do you know if there was any sort of competitiveness between the two of them? I mean, being that like she was the original star of Straight Cat Rock, and then Meiko Kaji kind of took it over. She didn't mention anything about Akikawada in my interview. It might have been, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know. Yeah. And Nikatsu got really deep into the whole pinky violence world, right? And that's why she make a, made a conscious effort to leave the studio. Yeah, she, she she said she was getting a lot of work, but she was just like, you know, I have to stop somewhere. Because she said, you know, going into her 30s, if she still did that, she didn't see her, you know, career going any, you know, any further. So she had like to make a conscious decision to have, take on different types of roles. Well, so, and I guess the plan with We Want Sounds is eventually to release all five of those 70s releases is that right yeah from what i'm hearing I, matt robin who runs the label is trying to do a whole series of her her music and her music evolved too she wasn't just doing uh this type of stuff her sound got a little bit softer later even in her 70s she did um new versions of her 70s tracks um which was uh you know so she's still very active as a, as a singer how is that like with like you know current modern day studio um, technology and all that has its own a lot of listeners especially from the west would probably prefer her music from the 70s because it just has that you know really like that 70s sound yeah i think it's just interesting that it's it's kind of uh it's great to see somebody you know late in the year still active if you see a lot of actors in the west when they get into the 70s most people just retire and they're not really doing stuff but you know she's still powering through. You know she she said she wanted to focus on her career and acting, so she didn't even have time to get married uh, or have kids or anything like that. Like she just wanted to focus on her work. So she's that kind of person. You know she's really focused on you know trying to create a legacy. Yeah. When you, also you think about it when you're talking about seventies versus the current sound, if they're making a whole four or five movie series um, in two weeks. They must it must be down and dirty with the recording as well. So it has yeah. to be these studio musicians who have all these sounds dialed in because it's it's raw and all, but it's recorded really, 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 really well. You know. Yeah, she was telling me um, one of her records, Sareo Sareo Kanashimi no Shirabe. The person who produced that was Masakatsu um, uh, Suzuki, and then his son uh, produced uh, one of her later records. So you can tell, like you know, she's been around in the in the industry for that long. Um, what about like for you personally? Is there a way for people that are interested in your writings or your your DJ doings? <laughs> Do you have a website or anything or a place that you direct people? Yeah, Instagram or uh, on Instagram, my name is Hashim Kotaro, H A S H I M K O T A R O. So if I have anything going on, if I write an article, I put it up on there. I recently uh, helped compile a compilation for '80s music from the J Japan. It's out on Sony. It's being distributed on Light in the Attic this year. It's 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 a label that was run by the YMO guys. It's called Alpha Records. No, I mean, the label that released YMO is Alpha Records. And so we did a compilation of music by YMO and also a lot of artists that were kind of around that scene. So that's something, yeah, the, the, the label that YMO had was called Yen Records. It's a compilation of music from Alpha and Yen Records. So that's coming out. That was announced recently. So I have things like that going on and just trying to, I'm, I guess I'm kind of promoting music from Japan because, you know, I'm from there. 
Um, it's part of, part of my you know history also, and I'm kind of you know, getting in touch with my Japanese roots again through the music and films films sometimes too. So um, yeah, this is a great way to, to you know get into you know the culture from where I'm from. Well, yeah, I thank you so much for your your passion for that and and your diligence, I guess, in um, unearthing all this stuff and and your writings and and whatnot. Um, look forward to the next three releases as they come out, and I assume you'll potentially be involved with the liner notes for those as well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it and giving me this chance to talk about all this stuff. Again, I want to thank Hashim for uh, coming on and go to his Instagram for more information on his writings and doings, and uh, go to WeWantSounds.com for their releases.